This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Slate's Mark Joseph Stern has been hearing the name Amy Coney Barrett for a couple of years now, ever since this story came out that President Trump was saving Barrett to someday replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like over the last three years, pretty much any time I tweet anything about Justice Ginsburg, trolls will respond with something along the lines of, she will die and we will replace her with Amy Coney Barrett. Like it, it has been a constant drumbeat for three years now. As soon as the news broke of Justice Ginsburg's death, the the name on everyone's lips was Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, I honestly feel like Republicans just placed her outside the cemetery gates and they were like, you know, as soon as Justice Ginsburg takes her last breath, like, we will install you. And, and I just feel like I have been trolled and, you know, many legal analysts have been trolled about this for a very long time. It's like the maximal troll. It is the final stage of the Trump troll. Like, this is it. It just doesn't get any troll. I mean, you held out the possibility that Amy Coney Barrett would turn down the nomination. Why? Well, because if you listen to her friends and her supporters, like they all say she's really smart, which I believe. She's really nice in person, which I I believe. Um, And, you know, she'll be a thoughtful, analytical judge. Um, And I guess, like, it seemed to me that if she were really as nice and as empathetic and as thoughtful as they claimed, that she would, at a minimum, not agree to be trotted out at uh, a Rose Garden ceremony intentionally designed to look exactly like RBGs before RBG is literally in the ground, Like, it just seems so ghoulish. And she even mentioned at this ceremony, like, the flags are still at half staff. Yeah, because she just died a week ago. Of course, this appointment, it's not about being nice. It's about power. Who's got it and who doesn't? For a progressive like Mark, it feels like a rug has been ripped out from under him. There's no pretending that they're doing something aside from politics. It it just seems like... Whatever we had for a very long time in this country, a Supreme Court that that garnered a lot of respect uh, from both sides, that did at important moments seem to sit above politics and not align itself with one party or platform, that's over. And it's over forever. Today on the show, Mark is going to explain why this appointment concerns him so much by looking at who Amy Coney Barrett is, 
as a person, but also as a scholar and a jurist. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mark says one way to understand how Amy Coney Barrett might rule as a Supreme Court justice is to look at the groups that are endorsing her right now, like the Susan B. Anthony list, which seeks to advance leaders who are opposed to abortion. And now she's set to give our pro-life country the court it deserves. After all this waiting, tell the Senate, tell everyone, confirm Amy Coney Barrett. There's also the Federalist Society. Barrett was speaking at their events just last month. She is a longtime member of the Federalist Society. She has taken money from the Federalist Society to travel around the country and give speeches. She is very much an entrenched part of the Federalist Society culture. And, um, you know, when we're talking about the Federalist Society, we're talking about this conservative network of attorneys. Uh, It begins in law school, but they're really everywhere. uh, And they sort of lift each other up into positions of power, right? And, And this was all created by a guy named Leonard Leo who was for a very long time the head of the Federalist Society. He handpicked the five conservatives who are on the court today. And even though he has theoretically left the group, everyone seems to agree, uh, every rational person (laughs) seems to agree that he's still playing a role uh, during this confirmation battle. I think the president and Amy Coney Barrett herself have done a really good job of introducing who this potential justice is. They've introduced her as a mom and a religious woman with seven kids. Real soft focus, gauzy lighting kind of introduction. But I'm hoping you can introduce Amy Coney Barrett as a jurist. She's a pretty new federal judge. And so we don't have a ton of opinions to lean on here. I mean, what we do know is that she clerked for Justice Scalia. He was her mentor. And she went on to teach at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And she was a very beloved professor there. But she also, while she was at Notre Dame, she made it very clear her conservative bent. I believe that she was on a faculty group that was that said it was pro-life. Mm-hmm. And I think that she also, you know, took a stance on the ACA. So it's like she's been out there with her opinions. It's, it's a little weird because um, she seemed to dip her toes into a possible career as like a cable news pundit for a couple years. Like 
maybe 2014, 2015, 2016, you, you see these interviews popping up, including one where she talked about how, you know, if Obama filled Justice Scalia's seat, it would dramatically alter the balance of power on the court, which is like pretty— Kind of ironic right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that what she was doing was following the Federalist Society playbook, where what you, basically what you do, and there are some variations, but you clerk for a federal judge, ideally a Supreme Court justice, check— right? You go into corporate law, which she did, Baker Botts, check. Uh, You go into academia and you build up a student following who will testify at your eventual confirmation hearings about how you're such a lovely person and you, you know, bring ice cream to class or whatever, check. And (laughs) then you start to make yourself prominent by going out on cable news and going on the lecture circuit and talking about really controversial issues in a kind of couched and euphemistic way so that the people in the know realize you're one of them and realize that you will rule for them. But people who don't pay super close attention to this stuff will just assume you're being a professor speaking in sort of academic legalese. Check. So that's where she was when Trump placed her on the Seventh Circuit. And that hearing, I think, really is what pushed her to the very top of the list because Dianne Feinstein said, the dogma lives loudly within you, which, you know, let's be clear, I think is totally inappropriate and really kind of offensive. Uh, well, let's hold on. Hold on. I'm going I'm to roll you back. Okay, okay. Roll me back. Yeah. That, that, that hearing was really interesting because she has this back and forth with Dianne Feinstein. And I want to talk about it a little bit. You are controversial. Let's start with that. You're controversial. I understand what Feinstein is saying. You know, she's saying you have a very strong Catholic faith, and I worry about that with you going into a judgeship where you may be ruling through the Catholic faith lens. I think whatever a religion is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in, in your case, uh, Professor, when you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. But you raise this really interesting point of that's a trap. Can you explain a little bit what happened and why you think that? So there is no way for Democrats to win on this talking point. Um, Because let's assume that uh, Dianne Feinstein had a real point here. Okay, let's just assume that she had a valid concern that Amy Coney Barrett would draw upon her Catholic faith rather than the actual law in her rulings, okay? There is simply no way to talk about that without Republicans jumping on what Democrats say and accusing them of anti-Catholic bias and accusing them of being bigoted against Catholics. And you can already see it. Yes. You can see in the last week, you know, pundits coming out and talking about how the quote-unquote liberal media is attacking Amy Coney Barrett's face. Oh my God, they were so eager for literally anyone to say anything bad 
about Barrett's faith this whole last week. You heard, you saw Republicans salivating like a dog at the at the dinner table, like waiting for a, a, a chicken bone. They were like, oh my God, please, someone, anyone, say something about Amy Coney Barrett's faith so that we can trot out these pre-written press releases and tweets about how deeply offensive it is that people are attacking her for her Catholic faith, this profound bigotry on the left is just further proof that we must confirm her. And what did we actually see over the last week about her faith? Like one bad Newsweek article, some randos tweeting stupid stuff. Half of them are probably bots. Like there is not a mass resistance to Amy Coney Barrett on the left due to her faith. There is a mass resistance because she has pretty clearly telegraphed what she is going to do on the court. And to my mind, her motivations are irrelevant. I don't really care why she believes what she believes. Like, she shares those beliefs with many other people who are not in a devout evangelical Christian charismatic worship group. This is kind of like the dogma of the Federalist Society, and it really accepts all comers as long as you're willing to buy into this super conservative, like anti-Roe, anti-LGBTQ, anti-labor jurisprudence. You can come from any background you want, and you will be welcomed with open arms. Hmm. Well, can we talk a little bit about the record she has, what we know, like where she stands on the ACA, for instance, because the court is set to take up the ACA this term. Right, right. So let's talk about, let's let's go over her relatively thin record and, and, and pluck out some examples. So we know that she believes that uh, John Roberts' uh, famous 2012 opinion upholding the ACA and the individual mandate, uh, she, she, she trashed that opinion. And she said that Roberts stretched the, the text beyond any plausible interpretation uh, in order to save the law. So <laughs> not only saying that the ACA is unconstitutional, but actually imputing bad faith to the chief justice for upholding it. Um, And there is a case at the court that will be heard one week after election day that seeks to eradicate the entire Affordable Care Act. It's not very difficult to guess where she's going to fall on that, right? And I think, like, this is a great example of why the Republican strategy on judges is so smart. They cannot get 50 votes to repeal the Affordable Care Act, Okay, they cannot get 50 votes to uh, abolish Medicaid expansion or protections for pre-existing conditions or whatever, right? But they can get 50 votes for judges who will do exactly that. And it is much easier to go out there and defend a mother of seven, a beloved faculty member and student advisor than it is to go out there and defend stripping health insurance from 20 million people. And so this is the game that they have played so successfully. And in some ways, like, Barrett is the end game, at least for the ACA. Another part of this end game is overturning Roe versus Wade. Mark says undertaking that project requires getting the optics just right. So I think first and foremost, the plan has always been to have a woman overturn Roe v. Wade. So the plan from from really the beginning. Okay, you sound so conspiratorial right now. Oh well, no, I mean this is the plan. Okay, well, I mean if you go back and look at what Reagan said about Sandra Day O'Connor when he nominated her, he was like, "I know, I feel personally confident that she opposes abortion and finds it abhorrent, and like will vote to 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 not respect abortion rights." And like she was the first woman on the court. Like this was not 
a coincidence. This was actually kind of done in plain daylight. Like, we will put a conservative woman on the court who will roll back and overturn Roe v. Wade. Like, that was the plan. And that didn't work out because O'Connor ended up flipping, right? So then Alito takes O'Connor's place. In 2007, the court issues this terrible decision that bans the the safest form of of a second trimester abortion. And it's five men in the majority, okay, five dudes. And that gets a lot of backlash. That, that gets a lot of blowback, even from kind of like independents and centristy types who are looking at this, these five dudes and saying they are making decisions for, you know, 150 million women. And they are like those justices and the, the network of conservative attorneys and, and politicians behind them understand the optics problem there. They really get that they are, they are vulnerable to accusations of misogyny and sexism when it's dudes rolling back women's reproductive rights. And so they have long said behind closed doors and sometimes uh, in broad daylight, like, we do not want a sausage party overturning Roe. We want a woman <laughs> to be the face of Roe's reversal to shield us from the accusations of misogyny that are certain to follow. And that's who Amy Coney Barrett is. Like, she was, like, born for this role. This is what she will do. I have very little doubt. Why are these groups, and why are you, so convinced of that? Um, So one example here is that she voted to reinstate uh, an Indiana law that would uh, require minors seeking an abortion Um, to notify their parents before the procedure, even if a judge uh, heard her case and ruled that she was mature enough to make the decision on her own without parental interference. What was her reasoning for doing that? Her reasoning, so, you know, here's the thing. She's only been on the bench for three years, not a super long time, right? She has not written anything herself about abortion in in that period. She's only joined other opinions. So it's a little bit difficult to, to glean exactly what she was thinking. But her reasoning in general was like, we don't know exactly how harmful this law is going to be to girls, and we don't know exactly how many girls it'll impact. So we need to let the law take effect and then assess the, the, the consequences rather than blocking it on the theory that young women need their constitutional rights protected. Basically, almost any time someone who is powerless or weak or a minority or is relying on the federal judiciary to protect their rights, anytime one of those people goes before Amy Coney Barrett, she rules against them. And it's a very, very, very clear pattern here. Prisoners who were subject to disproportionate violence don't get rights when Amy Coney Barrett's on their case. An immigrant who is about to be deported uh, and is going to face torture at home, Amy Coney Barrett says, deport them, send them away. A older person who is applying for a job and uh, likely turned away because of age discrimination, right? Amy Coney Barrett says, tough, tough shit. Like, you, you don't have any rights here. You can just suffer. Um, I mean, you've called it a fundamentally cruel interpretation of the law. It seems as if anytime there are two plausible readings of, of a text and one of them expands rights and one of them contracts them, she always goes for the reading that will contract rights, that will turn away vulnerable people, that will inflict real-world harm on the people before her court. And that is just so, so radically different from how Justice Ginsburg approached the law. 
Um, you know, Justice Ginsburg pretty much always took the more expansive reading, the reading that, that better protected liberty and equality and constitutional values that she held dear. Okay, so let's talk about what happens now. In some ways, it's very traditional. The nominee goes and meets with people mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill. Is it looking like that's going to go differently this time around because of how controversial Amy Coney Barrett is as a nominee? I think that more Democrats will refuse to meet with her. I think we'll see them doing what a lot of Republicans did to Merrick Garland, which is say, you're not a legitimate nominee, so I'm not going to meet with you. I think there's going to be a real tug of war over uh, whether to even show up to the hearings because like sitting in the same room with her legitimizes her nomination and legitimizes this whole process. And the line that Democrats seem to be settling on, at least as of now, is that this whole thing is illegitimate because Republicans have totally violated their own rule. People are voting as we speak, right? The election is well underway. And uh, everyone seems to agree that like the, the winner of the upcoming election should be the one to pick the nominee. I mean, not everyone, but a very large majority of Americans, including a lot of Republicans. So I think that some Democrats, like maybe Joe Manchin, are going to meet with her and they're going to say, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure. But there's going to be a really strong temptation for these kind of like bipartisan, centristy Dems to treat this like it's normal because she will come across well in the hearings, I believe. And she will seem like a competent, qualified nominee if you subtract all of the craziness and horror and partisanship that surrounds her nomination. I mean, you wrote that Democrats should try to stop this appointment by any means necessary. Like, what do you have in mind if you were on Capitol Hill? Well, you know, first of all, I really don't think there's any chance that Democrats can stop it. And I also think that they have a moral obligation to do everything that they can to stop it. Okay, I think that they need Hmm. to go out and say, like, we know this is a losing battle, but we will fight it anyway. You think the signaling is important? I think the signaling is important. Why? Uh, Because I I think they need to show voters just how messed up this is Uh, and, and just what an extreme power grab this is to fabricate a principle against... Um, confirming justices in an election year and then turn around and confirm a justice, not just in an election year, but while people are actively voting. They need to show Democratic voters and the American people that this is wrong and that this is the quintessence of playing politics with the Supreme Court. So do they show up for hearings? I think they send someone to ask questions at hearings, a very intelligent counsel. I do not think they should show up, no. I think they should send somebody to ask the tough questions, but I honestly don't trust most of them to ask those questions well, and I don't think that they should normalize this any more than it's already been normalized. I mean, it's worth remembering, we had Jamal Bowie on the show last week, and he talked about what a risk this is for the Republicans and for Mitch McConnell, because now we have some polling, and the polling does show that Americans think we should wait until the president is elected to make this decision. We also have, you know, a statement from the Lincoln Project, which has a bunch of, you know, we talked about the Federalist Society, has a bunch of former Federalist Society people in it. They're also saying we should wait. So 
there is this pressure. I'm not sure anyone in Washington is feeling it, (laughs) but it exists. I guess my question is like when, you know, the Democrats cannot show up, but what would it take for the Republicans to feel this as a real threat? So I think that they need to see massive protests in the streets on the scale of what we saw when they were on the verge of repealing the Affordable Care Act because they are on the verge of repealing the Affordable Care Act again. Like, we need people to grasp that we are in as perilous a moment for healthcare as we were back in 2017 when the Senate seemed to have the votes to repeal the ACA altogether. They do have the votes now to repeal the ACA. They're just doing it through, like, uh, an intermediary. (laughs) And so I think that we need to explain this to everybody, not just Democrats. Like, you know, a lot of people have a vested interest in not being stripped of their health insurance. And I think those people need to be told to make their voices heard. Wear a mask, use social distancing, but like show the Republicans that you get their game, that you are not fooled by this strategy of putting judges on the courts who will implement the unpopular policies that you couldn't pass democratically. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Court for Slate. And that's the show. But before we go, I've got a quick favor to ask. We're asking listeners like you, yeah, you, to call in and tell us how you're preparing for Election Day. What are you going to do to make sure your vote or your neighbor's vote or your loved one's vote counts? Are you working in a poll site? Are you making a voting plan? Tell us. And if this is your first time at the polls, I want to know all about that too. Just leave a message at 202-888-2588. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Jason DeLeon. We get help putting it all together from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.